Let's have a generalist question just to begin with, okay? How many of you have seen a case of spina bifida? You know, I asked that question about a month ago, a month and a half ago, in the closed country I go to, and there were three nurses uh, out there teaching, and they had uh, kind of, you know, just come into the operating room. We were preparing a child with spina bifida, and I said, now, have you ever seen a case of spina bifida? And two of them said, we've never even seen a case of spina bifida. Now, uh, you are probably somewhat unusual in that you have seen spina bifida, and we don't know what that, that means in the future. A good deal of the cases of spina bifida today are aborted before they deliver. Now, I have a whole range of papers, but please uh, feel free just to interrupt, talk. Uh, it's better that you understand what you want to understand than to me to give you a lot of facts that you don't really want. And uh, if, you're, if you have an interest and you want to know what I wrote down on all these papers, just send me a note. My address is there. It's uh, an encrypted address for obvious reasons. I'll send you the whole lecture and you can have it and it would be uh, something that might give you more of the information. Now, my wife always tells me, don't preach, tell stories. And I'm not a very good preacher, and I'm not a very good lecturer. I'm a better storyteller. This is Francesca. Now, we're going to have trouble here, aren't we, ladies? Let's move backwards a little bit. Does that give you any better look? I mean, Thank you. Okay. Uh, this is Francisca. Francisca first came to see me when she was about 16. She had a big ulcer in her foot. And later on, we discovered by x-ray she had extensive osteomyelitis in her foot. I said to Francisca, and she'll tell you this, if you look on YouTube and you look under Bethany and you look under Francesca, uh, there's her whole story. She said, when, he, when I saw him, he said, well, can I see your back? He says, how did he know anything was wrong with my back? And she had a big bulge on her back. She was a, a spina bifida patient born to a Samburu tribes people whose father wanted to sit, put her out for the hyenas. And the mother spared her. Now, Francisca couldn't go to school because she smelled bad. She, she was incontinent of urine and incontinent of stool. Uh, Francisca only came down because she had an uncle in Bible school, an uncle or cousin, I can't remember which, and he, when she came down, he recommended he come over, she come over and see me. And that began a, a bonding experience. I took off her leg. Uh, we put her on an artificial leg. And uh, she went on, became the head of our playroom in, at what was then the Bethany Crippled Children's Center. Uh, we grew close. Uh, a few years ago, she moved over to a place called Joytown Primary Special School. And there she has two roles, working with the children with spina bifida, trying to help with their sores, teaching them clean intermittent catheterization. But more importantly, she's their chaplain. She's the one they go to. Now, Francisca married Peter. Peter is a Kikuyu. Not a happy marriage between the background families, but they're very, very happy. And uh, Francisca dreamed of having children. And that's Jeremy. Jeremy's about three years old now. Uh, she, and I'll say this again, she's kind of one of my success stories. Now, the next one is a gal named Rebecca. Rebecca is the shorter person on this side. This is Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca and I became friends when she was three months old. I closed her back. And uh, she continued coming back. Rebecca also has a below-the-knee amputation on one side. Rebecca was reasonably bright. She also was incontinent of urine and stool. And uh, she, when she went to school, she would share with me a lot of the social disasters that came in her life. She loved to sing, and she sang in the choir. And when they got ready to go to the country, uh, I'm not sure what they call contests for singing, the head of the choir says, Rebecca, you can't go because you're wet. And Rebecca learned how to catheterize herself, how to do irrigations for her bowel. Rebecca went on to university. She's got a degree in social work. She went to work in Tanzania uh, with my recommendation. She's a mobilizer of disabled children. And she goes out to the villages. 
and uh, she's doing a great job. Rebecca's about 28 now. Now Gladys, that's Gladys on the right. I always have to look and make sure I know what right and left is. This is Gladys. I first met Gladys when she was a little smaller than that. She was too, also about three months old. Gladys had spina bifida. Uh, she, uh, she'd become a little bit of a family friend of ours in many ways. But uh, Gladys was a stubborn girl. You don't know any stubborn girls, do you? But anyhow, uh, she would come. We'd say to Gladys, Gladys, you need to do clean intermittent catheterization. We'd give her all these new catheters, and we'd give her some KY jelly. And she told me later, and this is after many years, she said, I'd walk outside and throw them in the trash can. <laughs> and uh, she knew how to do the clean intermittent catheterization, but until she got, into, got ready to go to high school, she wasn't going to do that. And then they said, if you're going to come to boarding school, if you're going to come to high school, you've got to be dry. And she began doing that. Her sores healed up. And then, lo and behold, she did well enough in high school, she came to work for us. And then, lo and behold, she went on to nursing school. These are three unusual people that I call successes. Successes, at least in my line, in that they're they're reasonably successful in, in their own light. Now I'll read a little bit. Um, the group that we worked with introduced cleaner intermittent catheterization in Central Africa. We had one stubborn nurse that came out of medic- nursing school and a year later came to work for us. And Agnes was a little di- piece of dynamite. And one of our uh, physiatrists that came from the University of Michigan in, uh, in Michigan taught her how to do clean intermittent catheterization, how to do bladder evaluations, a variety of things. And Agnes has gone to several places in Central Africa and taught other people how to do it. We'll go back to clean intermittent catheterization yet in in time. None of these girls have shunts. All are reasonably bright. All are ambulatory. All of them lack some sensation in their lower extremities. All of them are incontinent of urine. None of them have shunts. Uh, Gladys, when she came to work for us, picked out about probably 30, 40 of our patients that had had spina bifida to see what she could do with follow-up. She could only find about 35% of them. And we, we have a lot. Of, we, we, we hope the others aren't dead, but a significant number of them probably are dead. And... Uh, but part of the reason that we were looking at them is we wanted to see what the, the follow-up was, and she did find a lot. Now, uh, Africa has the fortunate thing of having cell phones now and text messages. And so we've been able to follow up in a lot more c- cases, but as the different competing cell companies compete for lowest price, people trade in and get a new number. And that is destructive on our uh, ability to follow up patients. Now, I could add, just as a parenthesis, another advantage of cell phones. Since most of the adults in Kenya have a cell phone, before any one of the mothers goes home from the hospital after their child has the client spina bifida closed and or a shunt put in, uh, we always give them our telephone number. And we tell them that 24-7, if they need to, they can call our hospital with any questions. And that's been very helpful because these, these types of cases are very threatening. If they're out in 100 miles away and their child gets a cold or gets a case of pneumonia or a whole variety of other things, nobody wants to treat them because they don't know anything about them. Uh, but the phone makes it easier. We send them home with papers that say how big their heads are if they have hydrocephalus, we send them home with papers to say, this is the diagnosis. If the child gets a fever and you can't find anything else, treat them with these antibiotics. Now, I don't carry that phone that gets called 24 hours a day. I may get called 24 hours a day, but our nurses have been very, very helpful in this. My first patient that got involved with uh, spina bifida was this child called Kevin Kamau. Uh, Kevin became one of my buddies for a long time. He was an infant when he came. Uh, he was six months old. I guess six months? Is that still an infant? Anyhow, he was six months old. 
His mother had been going to the National Hospital, which had been, at this point in time, the only other place in the country that closed spina bifida. And she'd taken, taken him there regularly, but nobody was willing to close his back. So she came to us, and I went and talked to the other doctor. Neither of us had ever closed a spina bifida. And I said, Bob, would you, would you be willing to close the spina bifida? And he says, yes, put him on the schedule, and we put him on after six months of age. We put him on for the following week. The day before he came in, the sac ruptured. He came in, had antibiotics given, and at the, after the antibiotics, Bob went ahead and closed the back. And a little bit later, with ultrasound, we identified he had hydrocephalus, and we put in a shunt. Kevin did well for about three years. And his mother came in, and she, this is 1992, end of 92. She said, uh, my son doesn't seem quite as sharp as he was. He doesn't seem quite as bright. Now, that's one of the symptoms of a malfunctioning shunt. Now, at that point in time, I was volunteering a little bit with Samaritan's Purse. I was between Kajabi, where I lived, and I was between there and Mogadishu, where I was helping on a, a medical team that was working at the wartime. And I said, and she knew this. I had very exp- explicitly explained that. I said, I'm not a neurosurgeon. I can do a lot of things, but the, some of the nuances I don't know. Why don't you go see a neurosurgeon? So she took her son into town. They did a uh, CT scan. They said his shunt is disconnected, and the doctor went in on the left side and put in another shunt. Logical. That's a lot of what I would have done, except that the other shunt got infected. So she came back to me. I was sometimes being there for Friday clinic at Kajabi and then flying back to Mogadishu. But I went in and I took out the shunt. We closed it up and uh, it healed. And by this time I was back out of Mogadishu and I went back and I I thought, well, let's explore the shunt I have in. I opened this up, uh, went down found that the shunt was not disconnected at all, that was fully functioning normal, and I just closed it up, except I went through an old scar, so the wound broke down, and I had to take out my own shunt. Uh, We put him on a a diuretic, Diamox, and then uh, about uh, six months later, we took him off the diuretic. He never needed another. About seven years later, he was in school, and he got sick, and he died. Uh, his mom was a great mom, and I, I think one of the things that, that probably limits a bit a bit who you want to care for is what is the mother like? How committed is she to this child? Um, what, what is she willing to do? Now, we have mothers that have never been to kindergarten doing clean intermittent catheterization, I mean, and we, tr- we train them. We, we have mothers that don't have any background that are able to take care of their son and do a very, or daughter and do a good job at it. This began an unanticipated adventure. And if you ever delve into this field, or if you're already in this field, you may be as crazy as I am, but if you ever delve in this, think through it very carefully. These are long-term commitments. This, I'm going to show you a few pictures of the cases we've taken care of with spina bifida. A few. Can you see? Okay. More and more children with spina bifida were arriving. Uh, uh, Dr. Albright, who took my place, and I'll mention him later, uh, is writes the book on pediatric neurosurgery for the world. And his comment, and this is, I thought this, but he said it. He said, we probably do more spina bifida at Kajabi than any place in the world. And then, uh, let's see, which one are we on? These, this is the hydrocephalus that comes with that. If you look up at this child here, you see all these little burn spots in the head. That's cultural. That gets rid of the evil spirits, they think. And sometimes we have to delay putting in a shunt till we get the spots, the burn spots uh, healed up.
Now, this is what happened as we delved into spina bifida and hydrocephalus. We soon found people coming not only from all over Kenya, but all over East Africa. And so the first year back in 1997 I th that we have recorded, we did put in seven shunts. Now, these include a few shunt-related procedures, like putting in an external ventricular drain if you have a encephalitis. The last year, we put 931 shunts in. First year, we did, if I remember right, nine uh, spina bifidus. The last year, we did about 393 spina bifidus. Questions? Yes, sir. We'll get there. Get there. Delay a few minutes. This yes. Is all at Kajabi, huh? This is all at Kajabi. Now, uh, in the last uh, three years, I'm doing it in another closed country. I say I'm doing it. I don't put any shunts in in that closed country now because the two young ladies who are two and four years out of medical school put them all in. And I say that very ex explicitly. They've been trained in a poor medical school in an extremely poor country, and they have the discipline to do it well, and their outcomes are as good as those at Kajabi. I think I can say that with pretty, pretty com good confidence. Uh, this, um, this is the growth that came, and if we look over all those years, we did an average of 320 shunts per year, and we did an average of 160 closures of spina bifida per year. Now, one might say that we first ventured into this in 1997, but in reality, this began much earlier, about in the early 1980s. Uh, we have nurses that interrupt. Are any of you nurses? Okay, well, we have nurses that interrupt our lives regularly, and we had some in the northern frontiers of Kenya that picked up their radio and said, could you put in a shunt? And there were only two surgeons at the hospital. And I went to the other surgeon. And I said, Bob, have you ever put in a shunt? And we decided that between the two of us, we'd never even seen a shunt put in. And about this time, this is long before email, I got a letter from Los Angeles. And this Chinese neurosurgeon said, I am a Chinese neurosurgeon. I am coming to Africa on safari. Could I have a tour of your hospital? Now, what does a normal missionary do in response to a letter like that? Now, I picked up my phone, and as I've said to some of you, it's a crank phone like your great-grandmothers had. And I called, and I said um, to my brother, I said, Jack, please call this man. He lives in the Los Angeles area. And just tell him we would love to give him a tour. How would you like to put it in a shunt? And he came out, and we put in a shunt, and that was the only shunt we saw put in for 15 years by a professional. And those 15 years were there. So the Chinese neurosurgeon was a great asset to moving us on, and we only put in maybe up to five or six per year for a long time. And we did it hesitantly. I get, if you, if you live, how many of you have lived abroad, I mean, regularly? Well, you get one of those little shipments of a box that people kindly send you that has about... You know, 40% of the stuff is, is pretty good. 60% you'd always kind of want it in certain circumstances, but they never, you know, they never hardly came. But in the bottom of that box were seven shunts. And so I put all those seven shunts, not worrying about what the pressure said in the side, and that kept us going. And I kept begging shunts for a few years. I had a friend that worked with Samaritan's Purse as a volunteer. who was a neurosurgeon in California. He'd get me a few shunts every year. And I think I've got this later, but I may have to repeat it. Eventually, we were begging more shunts than we could conscientiously beg. Now, shunts run in the States up to $1,000 each. So I came across this little article in a, in a throwaway journal on disabled kids, and it was from Tanz it was about a program in Tanzania that was beginning to do spina bifida and hydrocephalus run by a group called International Federation of Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus. And I, I wrote them an email. And I said, uh, can you tell me, and I hope I didn't say cheap. I said, I think I said inexpensive. I said, can you tell me where we can buy inexpensive shunts? And they wrote back and they said, uh, tell us what you're doing. And so I told him what we're doing. He says, 
I'll tell you what, why don't we just give you the shunts? Now, those first years, that was 30, 40 shunts. Today, it's four to 600 shunts. At, uh, and if they buy these shunts locally, they're 50 to $70 each, which isn't a lot of money in your, your pocket, but it's a lot of money there. At a dollar a day to maybe $2 a day, that you sometimes have to make a choice. Anyhow, that was our Chinese neurosurgeon, and uh, we continued doing it. Now, let's step back a little bit. The incidents, and we'll talk a little bit more scientifically. This is supposed to be a scientific lecture, and I don't know a lot of science, but anyhow, I'm going to share with you. The incidence of spina bifida varies among different geographical locations and different periods of time. Today, it's likely maybe 0.5 per thousand patients. We often tell people one per thousand. Guatemala has the highest incidence in the world, and I think it's two and a half to three percent. Three, two and a half to three per thousand, yes. I don't know. Uh, Karen, how many in Guatemala? You were telling me about Guatemala yesterday. Oh, come on. She's a professor, and she can't tell us this. <laughs> Anyhow, it's, it's high. Now, whether this is due to supplemental, you know, it's gone down, it's diminished in most locations. Is that due to supplemental folic acid or is it possibly due to abortion? We don't know that. And nobody's quite ready to prepare, prepared to, to tell us that. Now, a number of years ago, the New England Journal put out a, uh, an article from China. The CDC cooperated with, a, with two huge provinces. No, no province in China has less than many, many million people. And they put all the women of childbearing age that were sexually active on folic acid. And they reduced the incidence of, of spina bifida by 66 to 75%. Now, so if any of you ladies are thinking of babies, I hope you're on folic acid. In England and Wales, there's possibly a 31% or 32% reduction due to ultrasound screening and abortion. Undoubtedly, ethnic backgrounds and not the locations we've already said do affect the prevalence. And there are more women than, than men with spina bifida, more males and more females than males. Embryolo embryologically, the defect occurs by the 26th day. Now, one of the things we quickly say is, oh, she's pregnant. Let's get her on folic acid. Too late. Too late. And you, you really need to start it early. One of the biggest things we did with our program, and I don't mention this later, and we, we look and say, if this gal comes in with a child with spina bifida, one of the first things we say, have you put her on folic acid? And uh, all these women say, man, I'm not going to get pregnant for a long time. Don't believe them. Put them on folic acid. So, uh, you know how much it costs to put a, person, uh, a lady on five milligrams of folic acid a day for a year in Kenya? Eighty cents, eighty American cents. So it was a pretty cheap, pretty cheap investment. Environmental factors included things like socioeconomic status what they call potato blight, maternal hyperthermia, f very feverish, medications such as the medication for seizures, diuretics, antihistamines, sulfonamides, and something I've never heard of, hyperzincemia. Whether that's all true, I don't know, but I do know that the medicines for seizures do cause an increased incidence. Um, Four milligrams of folic acid reduces the incidence in women who previously had children with spina bifida by 72%. We had a lady come in at Kajabi with a child with spina bifida. This was her fifth child with spina bifida. She had gone to the main teaching hospital in the capital city for every one of the other four, and nobody had ever told her about folic acid stands out in your mind. One report noted that half of the shunted children needed revision within one year and that after two years, 10% needed revision. We didn't have that high of incidence at Kajabi. I don't think it's because we were better. I don't know why. Uh, 
Uh, IQ seemed to be affected by hydrocephalus, CNS infections, and the location of the spina bifida. Early repairs, which we did, uh, caused a much better outcome. Um, of There were 206 patients that they followed unselectively all comers. 59% were ambulators, community ambulators. 15% were household ambulators, and the others were non-ambulators. So if, the, if this was true, 74% were able to get around. That's not true in Kenya. It's lower than that. Only between 6 and 17% of spina bifida patients are continent of urine. Only 6 to 17%. CIC was introduced in 1972, and it revolutionized the care of children with spina bifida. First killer is what? What kills kids with spina bifida? What's the first big killer? Pardon? Infection. Infection in the back. Second big killer? Kidney failure. Kidney failure. And uh, that, that was the introduction of uh, clean intermittent catheterization. For those of you who are not working with it, be sure it says CIC. Don't think of clean catheterization. Think of clean intermittent catheterization. The catheter does not stay in. Clean, it's not sterile, it's clean. You wash your hands, preferably with soap and water. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the people with relatively clean hands put the catheter in and take it out. Now, the one, one thing they... Uh, U.S. has children as young as four years old doing clean intermittent catheterization. This is not only to keep you from being wet. It's not only to take pressure off the bladder, not only to prevent reflux, not only to prevent kidney damage, but it's also to provide social acceptability, and particularly as, as the people get older. And, you know, one of the things, how do you crawl on what we call a matatu, a public transport thing, smelling bad? If you've ever worked with, with women that have vesicovaginal fistulas, I mean, they walk in your office. You don't even—you could close your eyes and you could tell them what the diagnosis is because they smell. And if, when you open your eyes, you see a young lady who's generally speaking, not always, generally just gone through her first pregnancy, has a dead baby, and smells bad. Cleaner men catheterization doesn't help them because they're, they just got a big hole. Some have said that the the first killer, as I said, is the infection. The second is kidney failure. Now, if you write me, I'll send you the thing on how to do bladder evaluations. And that's written out by the stubborn little nurse that came into our lives and took care of these people. I've never done a bladder evaluation. And somebody, somebody mentioned in the last session, part of, it, part of the big responsibility you got is follow-up. Primary care is key to begin with. But it's who's going to take care? Who's going to answer that phone when they call you? Who's going to, you know, who's going to watch these kids to, as they grow up? I mean, as, as I said, uh, uh, Gladys and Rebecca and all since they're three months old. These are wonderful ladies. A while back, I just tell you a little story. Um, the former ambassador to Kenya was a good friend of mine. I've known him since high school. And his wife was a good friend. She's a nurse. And uh, I introduced Judy to these two gals, to, to, to Gladys and uh, Rebecca. And they went over to the ambassador's residence, spent the night there, swam in the pool. You talk about something that was beautiful for me. I mean, these, these people, and they continue to have a relationship. And that's wonderful. Let me review just a, a few very practical points. Take time with the mothers. Those mothers, if they have a child with spina bifida, need a lot of care. They need to be told what can be done and what can't be done. And I often sit down, and the majority I say, your child may never walk. He may never control his urine or stool. But he may be the most brightest person in the, in the room. Maybe he's more intelligent than any of us. Because they need just a little bit of hope. And then I would say to them, don't worry about the money at this point. We would appreciate your help, but we want to do what you want to do at this time, and you know what's best in your own life. 
And some of them take their child home. Not very many anymore. And then the second thing I tell them is, I am not a neurosurgeon. I take care of this type of patient, but I'm not a neurosurgeon. If you would choose to go into Nairobi and access a neurosurgeon, please feel welcome. You won't hurt my feelings at all. Nearly none would leave. I don't think it was because of the way I said it. I just think that they knew that they, they could get access now. Now, if you're working in a remote place, let me give you one little caution. That I, Any of you neurosurgeons in here? Uh, just put your hands in your ears for a second. Now, <laughs> uh, one of the things that had happened to me is I, I really wanted a neurosurgeon because I wasn't a neurosurgeon. I'm a general surgeon. And I would have neurosurgical friends come out, and many of them hadn't put a shunt in or closed the back for spina bifida since they were in their residency. And some had only closed a couple of backs for spina bifida. And I would always save what I, you know, some of them, the lipomeningocele were the hardest ones I ever did. And I would save those for the specialist, the specialist. And there were only two specialists that ever came out that, that I felt comfortable, really, as I watched them work. One was Ben Worf. Ben Worf is in Boston. He's a pediatric neurosurgeon. The other one was Leland Albright, the guy that replaced me. But don't make an assumption because a person has a title that they know what they're doing when it comes to certain types of patients. Don't embarrass them, but just, you know, one of the questions you say, uh, are you comfortable doing these? I don't give many of them to neurosurgeons anymore unless I really know this. And I'll explain that to you later if you like. The mothers need your team. And when I say that, uh, I often would make rounds in the morning and all. We had a room with 18 beds all filled with kids with hydrocephalus and spina bifida and their mother. We never let a child come in with rare, rare exceptions without a parent. And we'd make rounds and I would, after that I would go see for a chaplain. Mercy, as I think I've mentioned, is a 58-year-old lady now, a widow, had five kids of her own, all grown now. And I'd say, Mercy, that gal needs help. Mothers were sometimes single, oftentimes abandoned by the husband. Now, let me, let me just tell you, in case you ever wonder, in Africa, it's always the woman's fault. It's always the woman's fault. And uh, many times it's... They just say, you know, she's cursed or she has a problem. It's not me, but it's she. And uh, they'll walk away from it. So, And some of them are, you know, just, just don't know what to do. They're poor, generally speaking. Maybe that's why they wound up at our hospital. But uh, you got to help them to make a decision about how to do the, the right thing. And the chaplain can help you. Mercy's not a profound theologian. She's a profound lover of people. And her, her best, best gift is she can walk in and sit down on the bed beside a woman. Don't let them give you a male chaplain. It is, in, in, in our setting, in, it's not culturally right for a man to go sit down on a bed with another woman. And uh, they don't know the stresses that are going on in the woman's life either. And if you can, get a chaplain that has children and has that experience. Uh, care for this child and the mother is a long-term commitment. I've already said that. The commitment is not only of your time and your emotions, but sometimes financially. Children with spina bifida and hydrocephalus captured my heart. Uh, their parents usually did too, and they are needy, and cure is not likely, and most of the children will struggle with their disability all of their lives, and the mothers will struggle right along beside them. Be careful if you get involved with these kids uh, and taking care of the patients. You may become emotionally attached to many of these kids. Now, if you don't become emotionally attached, don't get into this business because you shouldn't be there because they're special kids. Now, I've left behind my... give you a few more pictures. I think I'm going the right direction. These all look the same. This is a reunion when I was going away. This is my kids. Uh, most of these had spina bifida. Uh, I don't see John. John had an epispadius. He was always known. He came to me first when he was about five years old. 
he was an abandoned kid. He was known as Baby John. <laughs> when he got to be 25, I see, every time I saw him, I thought, Baby John. I can't call him Baby John. And uh, John's now married. He has a degree in nursing. He's a strong guy. Um, questions? Questions? Yes? I don't know that that's got an answer. I mean, when I say that, it depends on the condition. There's a few studies in the states that say that if you ha- even when they get to be teenagers, you put a shunt in, you might spare a little bit of IQ. I don't think so. Um, there's another question that sometimes comes. They bring in a baby, and they said a month ago he could see, now he's blind. Now, I, and just a few, my neurosurgical friends don't believe this is true, but I put a few shunts in that have had been blind only maybe a month, month and a half, and they've had some vision restored. And that's not scientific, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, and then, too, you have to ask yourself, why are you putting in a shunt? I mean, if, if they're really out of it, then you, you, is, is this the best way to do it? We had a, lady, a young girl brought into us a while back. Her head was like this. She didn't have an ulceration on her. The parents were really taking care of it. She was about three years old. She'd smile at you but couldn't talk or anything like that. We reluctantly put a shunt in her just to try and get the head down a little bit so that they could have better care. Questions? Yes, sir. Well, I, I would guess within the first uh, probably five years, I, I would think we do div- uh, revisions probably 30% of the time. Uh, it depends on the case a little bit and depends on our expertise. Uh, we use what's called a Shabra shunt. It comes out of India. Uh, comes in low, medium, and high pressures. Uh, we practically always use medium pressures. Uh, I don't think... Now, part of, part of our problem is follow-up, getting the patients back to us or getting information. But uh, I don't think we, we have as high an incidence of complications, and I don't have evidence for that. Did I answer your question? I mean, I, I think it says I don't know in many ways. Yes, ma'am. Since the late 90s, there hasn't been, a, a, or has there been a kind of a public health movement to try and put all childbearing women on polio? Yeah. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, like the reason why we've seen such a decrease in the states is because we put it in our cereal. A while back, one of, one of our members of our staff was on in the Rotary. And uh, he met a fellow at the Rotary Club meeting who was the president or the head of a UNGA, which is the big flower-producing company in our country. And the very best grade of UNGA, the most expensive, had folic acid supplements. And so he came out and came out to Kajabi to visit. And I said, well, I hear you have folic acid in, in your one type of flower. I said, why? He says, I don't know. <laughs> but it was, you know, if we had a choice, we'd have put it in the cheapest flower because that's where most of our patients came from. And we've looked at, not, not as carefully as we should, we've looked at the, the geographical distribution, because, but a lot of them come from places that have a lot of rain and seemingly a lot of green leafy vegetables where they can get folic acid. But that's not always true. Um, we, we have 15 clinics scattered all over Kenya. We own none of them. We just do them in cooperation with people. And we used to leave on a Friday morning early and go off and do a clinic and be there all day and see any type of disabled child. But uh, that's where we did a lot of our follow-up. We thought the better thing was to take the po- pre- and post-operative care to the neighborhood because most of those moms had already taken their child to the local clinic, the local hospital, and the provincial hospital and, and generally told that there was nothing to be done for them. Uh, it's hard to ask a, a mom to bring her child 200 miles across the country. Now, west of us, 
I don't think to this day there's a neurosurgeon for the next 250 miles. And early on in the 90s, there was one orthopedist for that whole territory. So that's part of why we got a lot of other things. Yes? So you talked before about a band-aid general surgeon. And you said that you would... That was yesterday. <laughs> Okay, if I were, if I were, this, this is my dream team of cases, okay. This is, high, uh, we're putting in a shunt for hydrocephalus, being able to do club feet, meaning initially, hopefully, with a Ponsetti technique, and if they're resistant, to do first in Achilles tendon lengthening, and ultimately, selectively, under two-year-olds, certain feet to, for a total repair. Cleft lip repair, closure of some spina bifida. If they're big and cystic and nobody else is around that's going to be uh, have better skills, then close them. Close them. If they're flaccid, they're easy because you just take out that segment of cord. If they're not flaccid, they're more difficult. But it's probably better if you're if you're somewhat comfortable to go ahead and try and close them. Um, burn contractures, to release a contracture, to rotate some flaps, to do skin grafts, to learn how to splint them. I think if we added in a hernia repair for a child, that would be the main ones. And my guess is, and, and, and obviously this is still a lot of guessing, that would take care of 80 to 85% of the, the needs of children with uh, uh, that are disabled. Now, remi- let me remind you, a billion people in Africa, that's 50 million disabled people in Africa. So there's a lot of, lot of people. I talked to an orthopedist in Kampala, the capital city of Uganda, several years ago. He's now dead, but he said that we see over three to five new cases of polio every week. That's not true anymore, but that was, that's the type of disabilities that you, that you see coming in. One in a thousand births have club feet. In the West, we don't know what it is in Africa. One in a thousand births had hydrocephalus. Now we think it's probably more like four because of the infectious element. Twice as many boys have club feet as girls. Yes. Yes, sir. Um, we have five-year follow-up on our shunts. Um, we run about 70 You didn't raise your hand as a neurosurgeon. <laughs> I'm not a neurosurgeon. Where, do, where do you do ETVs? Where are you? Cameroon. Cameroon. Wonderful. Yeah, and neurosurgeon came out for five days. Talks you how to do that? Uh, well, most of the time I stick the scope in, and if I don't recognize enough anatomy, I simply pull out for a shot. Now, you're not in bingo. Classical, yeah. Okay. And uh, what percentage of your hydrocephalics are you getting to do an ETV on? Successfully. Successfully, 20%. 20%. Okay. Um, but my numbers are going up because I'm recognizing more and more anatomy as time okay. goes on. And the, the iPhone allows you to film through the scope so that I can then look at what I didn't know and look at the books and try and figure out what I didn't know. Now, listen to this carefully. This is He's not a neurosurgeon. He's doing a very profound procedure. I respect you for that. Now, I don't think I don't think the ETVs are the answer for Africa. I mean, but I, I will quickly say at Kajabi, when I looked cursorily over the last year of of hydrocephalics, 75% of the cases they put a shunt in, and that's with the presence of a pediatric neurosurgeon. Yes, sir. Could you put your email back up? Could I put it back up? Yes, I can. I think so. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, it's really hard to, to train most surgeons to use a PT and OT. 
And I think their work is invaluable. Karen, do you want to speak to that? Karen is not a PT and not an OT, but she goes to Joytown Special School. Come on, stand up. Yeah, we let women stand up here. <laughs> No, probably 20, 25% at most. I see more of them because I see the wheelchair kids. They're growing. <laughs> They're growing. And uh, they did hire a team of Kenyan uh, physical therapists that are there. And uh, because patients don't necessarily learn a whole lot about wheelchairs or spina bifida in school, and so it's a matter of you know, working with Francesca and training with the people I bring with me that have focused on that. So it takes an interdisciplinary team, and they are doing a wonderful job. My, my, my goals are as much for my students <laughs> as they are for the people there. And Francesca and the opinions have just built some the lives. Yeah, the thing, the newest thing that I felt being there is just kind of the community that's been developing as, um, and, I mean, I guess the spine of the community in Kenya is kind of becoming strengthened and more, there has been a lot of shame around it and it's, you know, a crazy disease, but as that community is kind of building up and learning, um, techniques like CIC and different things. Um, and Francesca, being there at the school, she has been through what it's like to grow up with Spina Bifida. Um, and she can talk to these kids that are in middle school, about to go into high school, and, and to let them know that, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have a child, I have a life, and, and you will too. Um, so the, the therapy is a big part of that, but also just the community within Spina Bifida patients is really, is really strong. And, really and it's cool because their outreach is goes both ways. Like one year we took a family over with us that had an American kid that's fine with it. And uh, Connor and his mom and sister came. And now they're going to go be trying to go work in Guatemala to reach out to moms of children who's fine with it there. Because often the moms are just devastated. You know, they don't understand their child as a teacher right at first. Now, if, if you haven't seen it, you ought to go on YouTube and look under Bethany Kids Francisca. I mean, she talks about not not only did her dad want to put her out for the hyenas, later in life she had one or two attempts at suicide because that was her her concept of herself was wet, dirty, soiling herself, unacceptable in the community, couldn't go to school, all these types of things. And the clean intermittent catheterization and the teaching of bowel irrigation changed her revolutionary. And in that in that Video, the YouTube, she says, as this, these things were resolved, she says, I wonder if I could marry. And uh, I went to her wedding. I mean, it was a, it was a special wedding. I, as far as I know, she's the only person in Kenya that's born children as a, child, as a person with spina bifida. And, yes, she was on folic acid. I want you to know. <laughs> yes. Is this a skill that we're they're teaching in the PACS program, the spina bifida closures, and so all of the PACS grads are, should be competent to? Ours are. Um, now, you're in bingo? Yeah, we do at least one a week. So, so we don't uh, do anywhere near the numbers. <laughs> so what would you say is the number to be competent for shunt? <laughs> you're competent. Yeah. If you're the only one there, you're competent. If you're the now, let, let me tell you what I tell people about the competence. Those things that you pull, take tissue with are supposed to be pushers, not squeezers. Be very careful on the skin. And uh, many of these kids have big heads, and their skin is a little bit more in paper thin. But And teach them to bury the shunt. Bury the shunt. Do I have it? Uh, it was deeply. If you'll remind me, I'll give you a video of this when you get done.
Okay. Well, no, I'll give you a video right over there to take with you. Yes, ma'am. Hi. So I'm a NICU nurse and a Mibuku student, and I'm wondering, is there anything, like, before the surgeries, is there anything in the initial care of the newborn that we should keep in mind? Well, I tell the mom to wash him and make him super-duper clean. And uh, that supaduka goes on better in a, a Swahili environment. And they, they knew what we were doing. And sometimes I would go and get soap and I'd cut a piece and I'd give it to them. Uh, uh, the other thing is be careful of the back. Uh, put them, if, if there's any suggestion of infection, treat them with antibiotics beforehand. Uh, but, I, you know, I'd like to come back to this. I'm so happy you're doing it in bingo. Jim Brown came as a medical student and worked with us one time. Jim's there by himself right now. Pardon? Jim's there by himself right now. Karen, do you have something you want to say? Or? I would just like to say something to do with the therapy and also some of these children are wheelchair-bound and one wheelchair does not fit all. So I would really encourage you to find out what the child, you know, what is available. Um, there's now an international push to try to improve things. Uh, there's a guideline for the provision of manual wheelchairs in most resort settings that the World Health Organization has up online. And uh, we do research on that, and I'm going to be putting our, some of it's available online and so on. Your, uh, your, her email will be right there on the board so that if you want to contact her. Now, her qualification, she's a professor of She's at Laterno University, and, and so. So, uh, God can, like you were saying, the person who's there, the person God puts to do it, God mm. opens loops and doors. So I don't pretend to be an expert. I always travel with therapists. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here. I, uh, it's been fun. And if you, you're very welcome to write me. Uh, if you're, if you're interested in doing these. Uh, the other, other quick thing is that if you're out there, invite some people out that would teach you. I mean, just one good lesson of putting in shunts or closing backs. But I, I, if you were asking him, how many backs would you have to close till you felt competent, I'd say maybe 100,000. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it's still threatening then, even then. And, uh, the first 500 in the yeah. Now, Yeah. Now, I would quickly say, just, just for a last note, if you go on Amazon and you look for used books and you look under um, Albright, you can find he's got two textbooks. One's a great big thing that weighs 15 pounds. My brother, my son just brought it out to my country. But uh, that has a lot of good stuff. The other one's a thin one on technique, which isn't really good, but it's, it's, it's helpful. Thank you.